A heads up before we get started. Mobbed Up contains explicit content, such as adult language and depictions of violence, including murder. Please be advised that this podcast might not be suitable for all audiences. This is Clay T. White, and I am with Tim Harney in his office here in Las Vegas. It is June 12th. 2010. So how are you this morning? I'm fine, Clay T. Tim Harney speaking. The interview you're hearing was conducted by Clay T. White, the director of the Oral History Research Center in the UNLV Library Special Collections and Archives. And as you just heard, she's sitting down with a Las Vegas resident named Tim Harney, who in the 1970s was living in the John S. Park neighborhood of the city. It's a historic neighborhood that sits just north of the Las Vegas Strip. Tell me economically what John S. Park was like in the 70s when you moved there. It was really pretty well off. Tim rattles off the names of a few of his old neighbors. The Binion family, the Max, the Boyds, the Stupaks. All high-profile names associated with the gaming industry. Names that are probably familiar to anyone listening who's been around Las Vegas for a while. All those people were, were living there. Put simply... There was a lot of money in the John S. Park neighborhood in the 1970s. If you were in the business of stealing, that translated to plenty of targets. There was a very famous gang in town. Uh, It was called the Hole in the Wall Gang. It was purportedly run by, and I think it was proven, by uh, Spilatro and an ex-cop and a bunch of other criminals. And they were breaking into houses. And they broke into ours twice. A neighbor, they just, the reason they call them the hole in the wall gang is if they, if you locked all your doors and had your windows taped, that was what security used to be, you'd put this tape, but they would go right through the wall. They'd take a sledgehammer and just beat a hole right through the wall. So they wouldn't set off these window tapes and door tapes. And uh, virtually everyone there was being robbed. Once you got power, a lot of power, you don't care about the money anymore. For the Las Vegas Review-Journal, in partnership with the Mob Museum, I'm Reed Redmond. He's one of you, you kill him. You're listening to Mobbed Up, a true story about money. You're not supposed to have a profile like that, especially in Vegas. Crime. You want to be very quiet so you can steal the money. He always said, if you pull a gun on somebody, you finish it. Because if you don't, it's going to come back to haunt you. And I remember saying, what's going on here? And he's saying, they're trying to kill me. And I said, who's trying to kill you? And then he shut up. And the fight for control of Las Vegas. The FBI will continue to look to the future to use the latest and most sophisticated techniques to fight organized crime. The mob would have destroyed Las Vegas. It's only a question, not if, or when it would be destroyed. I was there every day with these fellas. I had no idea that there was uh, a mob. And he once told somebody, there's bodies out there in the desert, and there's more every day. But if there is one area where the word war is appropriate, it is in the fight against crime. When you grab them, 
You'll bring them to the desert. You're going to know where the hole has been dug. Part 7. Hole in the Wall. Throughout the 1970s, while Tony Spilatro was busy building a criminal empire in Las Vegas, his childhood friend Frank Collada was back in Chicago, serving hard time. In the late 60s, Frank had been convicted on a handful of robbery and burglary charges, the most serious of them being a federal conviction for hijacking an interstate shipment of television sets. At Frank's sentencing hearing in that case, according to a biography co-written by Frank and Dennis Griffin, the judge stated, I am reluctant to say that somebody's business or profession is crime, but that is likely the case based on his prior performance, unless something drastic happens. I look at the prior employment record and there is no verifiable gainful employment, for example. I look at the prior criminal record and it is substantial. I wonder what it takes to persuade Frank John Collada that the way he's lived in the past is not good for him, much less the community or society. Frank ended up serving about six years in prison before he was paroled in 1974. When he got out, at 36 years old, the career burglar took a long, hard look at his life and decided he needed to make a change. Believe it or not, Frank says he was determined to be done with crime, and he tried his hand at legitimate business. Well, I owned a big nightclub in Chicago called Spanky's, and uh, I was making a lot of money there, and I had no intentions of moving to Vegas. Although Tony asked me several times, Tony Spacha, I need you in Vegas. I need you to back me up over there. He's your the only one I trust. He's, I got guys around me. He's, but I need somebody I grew up with. He said, could you come on? I said, yeah, but not right now. I said, let me get rid of my place. I had a beef stand at the time. Then when I sold the beef stand, I bought the nightclub. Frank insists that his business was legit and that he managed to go completely straight for a few years his only slip-up being one little tiny arson job on a competing disco that was being built a couple blocks away from his lounge. But other than that, he says he stayed away from crime. He was committed, and he, he wanted to go into legit business. This is true crime author and Frank's eventual biographer, Dennis Griffin. So he, he gave it a legitimate shot. I, I think he was very sincere when he wanted to go straight. And he you know, wanted to... I think for his mother's sake, too, he put her through a certain amount of grief, and I, I think he uh, he had some regrets about that. But uh, it, it just wasn't as easy as he thought, and he finally said to hell with it, and he went back to the old ways. After a few years of running the lounge, Frank grew bored, so he sold off his interest in the club and went right back to his bread and butter, stealing. All the while, keeping in touch with his friend Tony, out in Las Vegas. And Tony... Ask me again, and I tell him, nah, not yet. Things kept on like this until one day in 1978, when Frank says he got a more, you know, convincing offer to join Tony out in Vegas. An offer that came from Chicago outfit figure, Joey the Clown Lombardo. Again, not to be confused with Joe Lombardo, the current sheriff of Clark County, Nevada. I get a visit, it's about six, seven months after all these times Tony asked me to come out. I believe it's 1978. Joe Lombardo was equal to Tony at the time as far as power goes. 
He comes into my lounge. I know Joe Roy very well. Remember, I was connected to the Alpha, but I wasn't a boss. He reaches out and he says, Congratulations. Because you're moving to Vegas. I, I looked at him and I said, I guess I'm moving to Vegas. Frank Collada packed up his life in Chicago and drove out to Nevada in 1978 to start working for his old friend, Tony Spilatro. By this time, Tony had established a far-reaching network of loan sharks, freelance bookies, and drug dealers. Frank's job was to make sure everyone was paying their taxes, kicking money back up to Tony and to the outfit. According to Frank, Tony told him to put together a crew of guys to help out. He said, I need you to get some guys. He's like, I said, I got guys with me, but I want our guys from Chicago. I said, all right, Tony, but they got to earn. These guys got to earn. I'll get you guys. They ain't going to work for nothing. And we don't give paychecks out. He's telling them they could steal. Do anything they want. If I want them to whack somebody, I'll give them the okay on that. I'll get the okay from Chicago. I said, okay. So that's when I formed a crew of guys. That crew, which would include burglars, arsonists, and murderers, would eventually come to be known as the Hole in the Wall Gang. I want to start off by saying that I'm not a gangster anymore. I don't use drugs anymore. I'm not a drug pusher anymore or a loan shark. I'm not a priest or a minister. I'm Ernie Devino. I live in Cliffside Park, New Jersey. I thank Christ for my life, for what it is now, and this is my story. This is Ernie Devino, one of the only other living members of the so-called Hole in the Wall gang. The audio you're hearing is from a documentary by Freebird Media titled Ernesto Ernie Devino, The Last Stand-Up Guy. As you just heard him say, Ernie isn't the gangster he once was. But back in the late 70s, just like Frank Collada, he was a career criminal. What I really thought when I got to Vegas was that I had arrived, that this was me, that this was a criminal town, I was a criminal, and uh, I'm here. This is it. This is what I am. This is who I am, and all that. This is, I thought I was in heaven. According to Ernie, the Hole in the Wall gang had already gotten started before Frank came to town. He and another thief who would join Frank's crew, a guy named Leo Guardino, were already working together in Vegas. Well, the original, what you would call the Hole in the Wall gang, was Leo Guardino and myself. We started out together before Frank Alada came. Frank would later write in a 2014 memoir, Ernie was a short, muscular guy, and I liked him. I'd been taking Ernie on some burglaries with me. He was a talented thief. And although he wasn't a killer, he was willing to use muscle. Frank Collada was, uh, he had done some time. He was a, definitely a street guy. There's no question about that. Uh, the only problem with Frank was Frank was for Frank. And that's it. And no one else. He was always that way. Right from the start. And he was the one that actually brought Tony Spilatro into the picture, so to speak. Things changed for Ernie and Leo once they connected with Frank and started working for Tony Spilatro. 
everything got easier and everything got better. I could walk into a place and all of a sudden people are handing me money, handing me deals and, and everything else. And all the guys that I had on Shylock were now, I didn't have to go hunt them down anymore. They were coming and bringing the money to me. Everything just sort of not, you know, was at the time, yes, it was great, but all they were doing was leading me to uh, further incrimination and further trouble with the law. But things did get, as far as uh, my criminal activity, things became much better when all of a sudden now that I have affiliations with Tony Spilatro. Frank also brought in a guy named Wayne Matecki, who used to work as a doorman at Frank's nightclub in Chicago, and someone he'd met in prison, a convicted triple murderer named Larry Newman, who had somehow managed to get out on parole after serving only 11 years of a more than 100-year sentence. But to tell you a story about, to describe Larry Newman, as a young man, he was, he went to some club where uh, they had gambling at that time in Chicago. And he got into an argument with the uh, cocktail waitress. And then a couple of the bouncers came over to throw him out. They roughed him up a little bit. He went home and got a shotgun and came back and killed all three of them. And he really didn't care. That's the kind of guy Larry was right up to the end. A few other guys came in and out of the crew, but this was the core of the Hole in the Wall gang. Ernie DeVino, Leo Guardino, Wayne Matecki, Larry Newman, and of course, Frank Collada. And when they weren't muscling bookies for Tony or taking care of problems in the Outfits casinos, the crew was free to set up their own scores. They had to make a living after all. And they had a network of tipsters, and the, the tipsters would provide lucrative targets for the gang. This again is true crime author and Frank's eventual biographer, Dennis Griffin, who told me these tipsters would offer Frank and his crew information on potential scores in exchange for a cut around 10% of whatever the crew came away with. One example he gave me was that insurance agents would give the crew information on where valuables are being stored in their clients' homes or businesses. Once the crew had that information, it was just a matter of getting in. So I could shut off alarms, so could Leo. There were just local alarms, ace lock. It was simple. But somehow, since you couldn't walk to the, to the alarm because they were right by the front door, and there's neighbors, you know, could see you going by the door. Back then, people didn't sit by their window like they do now, look out. So we start hopping the walls. I didn't, Leo, Leo and the other guys I saw. They'd hop the wall and Leo says, the only way we could go in is shoot a bag. And I tell him, fucking pop a hole in the wall. So they pop a hole in stucco. These buildings are easy. They got a little screening in there. You just cut that out afterwards. You go right into the master bedroom. It's usually in the rear of the house. And that's where they keep their money hidden in the safe, in the floor, in the wall. They'd get it and leave. Pretty soon, bashing holes in walls became the crew's trademark. That's how you got the name Hole in the Wall Gang. The first time I met Frank, when his security guard drove us around Las Vegas, we didn't just stop by the former home of Jerry Listener, the alleged con man he murdered in 1979 and told us about on part one of this series. Frank also showed me some of the neighborhoods that the Hole in the Wall gang used to steal out of. We did a lot of burglaries in there when I first moved out of there. It was a very 
plenty of money in this area. After the break, Frank and the Hole in the Wall gang set their sights on a million dollar score. As Frank Collada shows me some of the neighborhoods he used to burglarize with the Hole in the Wall gang, it's astounding to me just how many houses he claims they hit. So how many of these houses... Did I rob? Yeah. Well, let me put it like this. I may have robbed myself out here, maybe 10, but the guys that I was with that I ordered to rob homes or whatever, you know, they worked for us, let's say, they must have robbed 250, 300 homes. Once again, here's true crime author and Frank's biographer, Dennis Griffin. And I asked Frank one time, I said, Frank, did you feel guilty, you know, about the, uh, you know, these are innocent victims. I mean, they're just John Q. public. And he says, not really. He said, because he said, don't forget, he said, the insurance agents, they also are the ones that have to handle the claims or get the reports. He said, most of these so-called victims, he said, they claim stuff that we never took. So he said, you know, there might be a little bit of larceny in everyone's soul. As Frank and I drive through one of the neighborhoods he used to steal from, he takes a guess at just how much money he and his crew took out of it. We must have stole a few million dollars out of her easily. A few million dollars out of just one neighborhood. It sounds like they're making pretty good money, especially considering this was over 40 years ago. But just like running a legitimate business, Frank told me there were plenty of costs associated with running an illegitimate one. You have to make sure everyone in the crew gets paid, purchase equipment, hire specialists, pay off tipsters, cover legal fees, and of course, kick back a percentage of any big scores to the outfit. Meanwhile, mounting pressure from the Las Vegas Metro Police and the FBI was making it more and more difficult to operate. In particular, law enforcement had been turning up the heat on Frank's boss, Tony Spilatro. In 1978, federal agents raided Tony's jewelry store and headquarters, the Gold Rush, seizing thousands of items. Warrants filed in federal court after the raids included a 23-page list of items seized, including, as Jane M. Morrison would report in the Review Journal, what appeared to be the store's entire stock of jewelry. Once you have the search warrants being served, you know you're under investigation. A drawn-out court battle followed the 1978 raids, and years later, a federal magistrate would rule that most of the evidence taken that day had been seized illegally. But according to Tony Spilatro's case agent with the FBI, Mark Casper, they did get something out of it. Knowledge. Because of the uh, ongoing activities, basically the, um, the wiretaps that we had and the investigation we had done became just a a book of knowledge of what Tony was doing, and his activities continued on after these searches. Also in 1978, state regulators struck another big blow when they banned Tony Spilatro from setting foot in a casino by adding his name to what is commonly referred to as the Black Book. Well, it was uh, it's officially known as the list of excluded persons, but it just had a, a black cover to it, <clears throat> and that's why they called it the Black Book. It wasn't really a book, in fact. This is Jeff Silver, 
a former member of the Nevada Gaming Control Board. They only had uh, a few names in it, but these were people whose mere presence in a, in a gaming establishment was uh, deemed to be so antithetical to good good uh, regulatory control and uh, the reputation of the industry that they had to be excluded and they couldn't even step foot on the premises. Meanwhile, federal investigators were closely monitoring the activities of Tony and his associates around the clock. Here's RJ reporter Jeff Gehrman. And the feds just were, like I say, it was night and day surveillance. And, and it got to the point where Spalacho stopped driving because he didn't want to get caught on a speeding, you know, get a traffic ticket for, for speeding. And so they were, they were just, they were all over the place with, with Spalacho in those days. Everyone in Tony Spalacho's circle seemed to be growing more and more paranoid. They were constantly spotting FBI agents, following them, and of course, there was always the looming possibility that someone within their circle might be feeding information to the government. It's around this time in October of 1979 that Frank carried out the murder you heard about in part one of this series, when he shot an alleged con man named Jerry Listener to death because Jerry was rumored to be an FBI informant. Tony was very paranoid. He had an extreme amount of heat on him. And, uh... He knew there was a rat within. He just didn't know who. So he had to weed us out. One day, Tony asked Frank to come over to his brother's house. So I go over to Johnny's house, Johnny Splacho's brother. He lived at the other end of the street from Tony. So Tony says, we're going to go into the jacuzzi. Did you bring a bathing suit? I shouldn't tell me to bring a bathing suit. He said, yeah. He said, well, she's got one for you, Johnny's wife. She says, it's in the bathroom. So I go in the bathroom, taking my clothes off. I'm going to get the bathing suit. The door opens. It's Tony. What are you looking at? I'm standing there naked. He's nothing. He says, I was wondering why it's taking so long. It didn't dawn on me at the time. He was checking to see if I had a wire on me. Frank tells me that he had nothing to worry about that he was, to use his words, very faithful and very honorable. So I put the bathing suit on, we go into Jacuzzi. Who's in there? Joe Blasco? Joe Blasco was an ex-cop who was working with the Hole in the Wall gang. He'd been fired by Las Vegas Metro for feeding information to Tony Spilatro. Tony's brother Johnny and me, we start discussing all the shit that's going on. Frank says Tony knew there was a rat in the group. He just didn't know who it was. He had everyone get in his brother's jacuzzi because it was the only place he could be sure he wasn't being recorded. So after I get out, I, I laid a trap in the bathroom to see if they would go into my clothes. I set them a certain way. When I went in there, my clothes were moved around. So I said, I know. Tony was right about one thing. There was a rat among his ranks. But it wasn't Frank or anyone else who was in the jacuzzi that night. As time went on and money grew tighter, one potential score always stuck with Frank in the back of his mind. A score he thought could net upwards of a million dollars, but one he'd deemed too risky when he first heard about it. It was a home furnishing store near downtown Las Vegas called Bertha's. Now people would say, ah, oh, home furnishings. And I got information on that score from somebody that was related to somebody there 
that their, uh, the lady never paid her taxes, or she did a little bit. She hid a lot of money from the government. Now, Frank had, had taken a look at Bertha's when he first got into Vegas, he and, he and one of his associates. And uh, they, they thought it might be a, a loop score, and they, they looked it over, they went in, you know, proposing the shoppers, and I looked around in the store and stuff. And they thought it might be a good score, but they never did anything with it. It was just something they cased the place a little bit, but didn't make a, at that point, make a plan to actually take it down. A few years later, in 1981, things had changed. Law enforcement was cracking down and there wasn't much money coming in. Frank and Tony both are primary targets of law enforcement, both local and fed, the feds. So Frank's always getting busted and he's out on bail from uh, this charge and that charge and this charge. And he's got a lot of money tied up in bail bonds. The finances are starting to get pretty, uh, pretty thin. So he knows he, he needs a big score. He needs, so he, he comes back again with the idea of Bertha's. Frank and the Hole in the Wall gang decided to hit Bertha's on the 4th of July in 1981. Why 4th of July? It's a busy time in Las Vegas. Everybody's on the strip. Maybe 300,000 people, 350,000 people. All metros down there. Firecrackers, noise, everything. We, it was all working for us. July 4th, 1981 was predictably hot. It was July in Las Vegas after all. The Hole in the Wall gang waited for the cover of Nightfall to make its move. Here's how we were gonna rob this place. Frank walks me through the night of the burglary as we're sitting in his SUV in an alley on the side of what is now a pretty nondescript jewelry store. As he's going through the plan step by step, I can picture a younger Frank, 30 years prior, huddling up with his crew to run through assignments one last time almost like a quarterback going over routes with his wide receivers before breaking to run a play. We were gonna go through the roof, on top of the vault, land on top of the vault, cut it open with settling tanks and torches. We had the water to cool off the metal. Once one of the guys drops in the vault, the other two guys that were up there with him would throw duffel bags down there so he could load everything up in the, they could load everything up in the bags and bring it up. How they were gonna get on the roof. You see that gangway there between the two buildings? You see that? We had a ladder put there, eight foot ladder, probably about a week, a couple days before we attempted to rob it or robbed it. That roof right next to it, that building I should say, there was five FBI agents on that roof. We didn't know that or else we would have ever did the robbery. They were on this roof also where it's the city impact. And there's a gangway, as you can see, the gangway that they went up on it. There's also another building there on that roof. That's right. The FBI and Las Vegas Metropolitan Police were watching from an adjacent rooftop. And so an informant tipped off the FBI and police to a burglary they were planning at Bertha's. Review Journal reporter Jeff Gehrman. Bertha's was a well-known gift store, gift shop. It was high-end gifts. They thought they could get about a million dollars in merchandise from this burglary. It was a big deal. But law enforcement knew about it. The FBI and Las Vegas Metro Police had been tipped off about the burglary. The quote-unquote rat in the Hole in the Wall gang. The guy providing information to the feds turned out to be a thief named Sal Romano. 
a relative newcomer who had been going out on scores with the crew off and on in the months leading up to the Bertha's job. I didn't like Sauron. I didn't trust them. The guy couldn't make eye contact. Something bad, something suspicious about this guy. As they say, hindsight's always twenty twenty. It turns out Frank was 100% right. Romano was, in fact, a federal informant. So he had told the FBI what was coming down. The FBI and Metro Intelligence, working jointly, have the place covered. Thanks to Sal Romano, the FBI and Las Vegas Metro had eyes on every single move the burglars made on the night of July 4th, 1981. In the hours leading up to the would-be burglary, police records state, quote, Frank Collada was observed in the immediate area of Bertha's and Commercial Center for approximately a two-hour period, driving his 1981 Buick Riviera, gray in color, bearing an Illinois plate, obviously conducting a counter-surveillance looking for police units. After that, law enforcement watched as members of Frank's crew drove up in a station wagon and parked behind a Chinese restaurant across the street from Bertha's. After they got out of the car, the records state, these persons were observed by surveilling units to unload equipment along with a ladder and proceed to the east side of Bertha's furniture store building near a doctor's office and gain access to the roof with some equipment. From the next door rooftop, Metro officers and FBI agents then observed three of the men using electronic equipment and hand tools to cut a hole in the roof of Bertha's. A couple hours later, they watched as one of the men dropped in. As soon as these feds on the roof seen Leo drop in the hole, now they got a burglary, not an attempted burglary. Now they got a burglary. They could arrest them. And as soon as they broke in, they were, they were able to take him down. They arrested six suspects, including Collada. Stan Hunterton, a prosecutor with the Organized Crime Strike Force in Las Vegas, was on standby that night in case the FBI needed anything. This looked like it was going to be a really good takedown because they were all going to be in the same place. Our information looked pretty reliable about it, and uh, it worked out just fine. <laughs> Looking back on that night and knowing what would come next, Frank Collada told me this was the end of organized crime in Las Vegas. On part eight of Mobbed Up, we head out to Kansas City, where the FBI is about to strike gold. This was not on the radar. It came out of the blue, uh, you know. And then I'm saying, you know, then as I listened for the third time or fourth time, uh, I'm saying, oh my goodness, this could be the one of the biggest things happen in the FBI uh, organized crime programs. This has been part seven of Mobbed Up, a production of the Las Vegas Review-Journal in partnership with the Mob Museum. Mobbed Up is reported and produced by me, Reed Redmond. If you have any questions, or if you have any mob stories you want to share, I'd love to hear them. You can find me on Twitter at RedReedmond or send an email to rredmond at reviewjournal.com. Our sound designer and audio editor for this series is Jonathan McMichael, who also composed the theme song you're hearing right now. Other sound effects and music are from Stephen Arnold Music and Motion Array. 
Thanks to Frank Collada, Dennis Griffin, Jane N. Morrison, Mark Casper, Jeff Silver, Jeff Gehrman, and Stan Hunterton for sitting down with me for this episode. Additional audio clips used in this episode come from the Oral History Research Center at the UNLV Library's Special Collections and Archives, as well as the Freebird Media documentary Ernesto Ernie Davino, The Last Stand-Up Guy, available in its entirety on Freebird Media's Vimeo page. To learn more about the Mob Museum, make sure you head over to themobmuseum.org. You can learn more about Mobbed Up and check out some of the Review Journal's other podcasts at reviewjournal.com backslash podcasts. Thanks as always for tuning in, and we'll be back with more next week.